Let's talk about the creeds and the council, how we have read the scriptures together as church. You know, one critical thing we have to talk about here is one of the things, we're a church of the, proudly a church of the Reformation. And one of the things we believe as Anglicans is in sola scriptura. We believe in that. But sometimes that's misunderstood. Sola scriptura doesn't mean private interpretation. Those are very different ideas. Calvin, Luther, all disagree with that. No one. The, you know, some people say, well, you know, we all just look at our Bible and anyone's impressions are equal to anyone else's. Is God speaking to me? And the scripture has a real meaning. Like Peter says, prophecy is not a matter of personal interpretation. It comes from God. <laughs> and so the idea is that we read scripture together. So, you know, it's we as all Christians together read the scripture together. And so how, this is really about how have we done that? How do we as the church read the scripture together? So scripture is, is supreme. But the question is when we disagree about scripture, <clears throat> you know, how do we determine how to interpret it is, is we have a history of we, we read it together. Okay, so let's look at specifically, let's talk, our topics will be what is a creed, what is a council, uh, what was, and what was clarified at each of the seven general councils, of the, ecumen the first seven ecumenical councils. Okay, so let's start. What is a creed? A creed is simply a statement of what we believe. And for the terminology here, creed comes a lot of word credo. Credo in Latin means I believe. Like the Nicene Creed begins, credo in unum deum, Latin version. I believe in one God. You know, credo, I believe. Now, the Greek word, which is in most languages use that instead, like in French we say symbole, you know, is a symbolon is a, Greek, a neat Greek term. In the ancient world, how could you be sure that, you were, you're, that somebody was who they claimed to be? And what you do is you break something like a potsherd, you know, with broken parts, you know, and so you would take that with you. So if you met the person, you could see if they fit. That was how you break something that, you know, would have um, jagged lines, you know, jagged edges. You'd break something, and that was the way you could be sure that, yeah, you're the one. You're not a fake. You really are the one I'm supposed to see. So that's what they used routinely in the ancient world to, as identifying mark, like, a, like your identity card. That's what you did. And so the symbolon, or we, we say symbol, and that's almost all languages except English, frankly, you know, have some version like, you know, it, it'll be symbol if you hear that, is that's how you knew that you were really with other people who shared the faith. How do you know that this, I'm with somebody who really shares? Like uh, Mormons claim to be Christians, but they're not. <laughs> how do we know that we're really talking about, yeah, you say, you know, you use things. How do we know we're really who we are here? And we look at the creed. What does the creed you know, our creed. Okay. So that's where the term comes from, the meaning of a creed. And there are three Catholic creeds, meaning the, the universal creeds. And the first one is the Apostles' Creed. It's an apocryphal story of the apostles each giving something. Uh, that's not the important part, but the important part why people love this, it was the creed of the church at Rome. Here's the special case of the church at Rome. Uh, it was, had nothing to do with the Pope is in the ancient world, uh, when you want, for, for even now, okay, you'd say, where can you find the best example of something? And so they're saying, wait a second. It's like language. If you say, okay, I wonder what this, you know, uh, who's the best person to study French from or something? And you have somebody who grew up in France <laughs> and somebody studied in high school or something, maybe they're an A student or something, and say, well, you know, somebody growing up in France, I have a lot of confidence 
that they're French, you know, the very fact that where they are is going to be more authentic. So the idea is Peter and Paul, the two key apostles, were both at the church in Rome. And this was their church. So it wasn't Peter, per se, or the keys. It was simply the fact this is the church of Peter and Paul. And so that had a lot of credibility to people. You know, so if you have to ask, you know, what, what did they do there? Had a very ancient, unbroken tradition that, that people, you know, mired would check in with type of, uh, type of thing. So in that church, the ancient church at Rome, the Apostles' Creed is actually the church, the creed you had to be baptized. To, to, be a bapti- to be baptized into the Christian faith, these are the things you have to believe. That is our faith. Do you believe these things? That is the creed that you, that you have at your baptism. Okay. Now the Nicene Creed, we're going to find out when we talk about the councils, is actually, there's the original creed at Nicaea, and then it has to be amended for the Holy Spirit at the very next council, at first Constantinople. So the actual, if you read in technical documents, you read actual history and theology, we call it the Nicene Constantinopolitan. Now that's really hard to pronounce, but here's how you can remember. In the middle, you see the word tin? Put the accent on tin. Constantinopolitan. That's how it's always in the books, because, it's, because the Nicene Creed is the creed from Nicaea, but that was amended at the next council. So what we call the Nicene Creed is the amended form of that creed that was amended at the very next council to put in uh, an extra sentence about the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what basically the Nicene Creed is, though, is it basically is an expansion. You know, things that people misunderstood, they spelled them out. So it, I'm going to show you this. They basically added to the creeds for some things where people aren't getting the words right, aren't really getting the message, and they actually added words to the creed to spell out what was there that might be missed. That's what they're just spelling it out. And also, one of the reasons they did that is that in the original creed, the real, a real tendency in the early church was to be very suspicious of adding any words not actually in the New Testament. They wanted to use the exact words of the New Testament. And later on, it's like if you deal with law, you know, things you, or any profession, you have to have terms of art. You know, the things that means very precise things. Like in law, certain terms mean their legal definition is very, very precise as opposed to a general definition. So they often took things where people had missed them and they spelled them out, even invented new terms specifically that could not be misunderstood. Okay. And so it's basically an expansion of the, of the baptismal creed. It's basically the same Apostles' Creed with extra stuff added in, unless there be any doubt of what we mean by this. And finally, with the Athanasian Creed, which was later uh, widely accepted expansion of the Nicene Creed. Like I gave you some examples from that, where they really cross every I and dot, uh, dot, dot every I and cross every T, where they try to say, lest there be any possible doubt. So those are the three Catholic creeds. Now, we normally now only emphasize, we believe in all three, as a matter of, of Anglicans. But we normally only insist upon the first two, as the Apostles and the Nicene, as the ones we are, as practical matter, we insist on. Okay. The reason isn't we disagree with the third, but the third has some editorial problems. Is the editorial problems are, there was a, at that stage in the church's life, people often had curses in and things, saying, cursed be he who doesn't do this, you know, et cetera. And we don't feel really good about that. Well, as a kid, you'd still read the Athanasian Creed once a year, you know, on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work well anymore, and so we don't disagree with its theology, but the way it's written is, uh, is not affirming. And so that's why we don't. So it's not, we still accept the, the teachings, but not the, the form, really. So let's look at some examples between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. 
is the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed starts the same way, except it says, of all that is visible and invisible. Now, some of the things we had with Gnostics and things had to do with uh, the physical world as opposed to the non-physical world. You know, eons and archons and all these things. And so they point out God is the source of everything. So we have to add, let's be clear, we, we, heavens and earth in Hebrew was meant to be, mean everything. That's how they said universe, heaven and earth. But we start to have Greek thought that starts having people say, well, there's the physical world of the heavens. Because heaven actually, you understand, in, in ancient thought, the heavens were a bowl, like a giant bowl over the sky, and the, and the stars were stuck in it. That's ancient science. You know, they sort of move, they, and the bowl moves around, and yeah, that's how it works. So, so they looked at it as very physical, and so that's why, so they're just expanding, they're not changing anything. It's like God, the whole idea is God created everything. But some people, well, he only created the physical stuff. No. Invisible, visible, everything. I mean, God created everything. Okay. Our next thing here. This is about Jesus Christ. A big section we have, in, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. I put that in brackets because that's going to be dropped from the Nicene Creed. Not that they didn't believe it, but they just thought, they thought it was unnecessary. They, they dropped it. Okay. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now let's look at what they do with that in the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed we have, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find out later one of the things is we know we have the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, before all time. But we also know at a point in time, only 2,000 years ago, that eternally begotten Son of God took on, was incarnate, took on human form. He assumed humanity. That only happened 2,000 years ago. And so the question is, sometimes we're going to find out, and we'll talk in detail when we go through the councils, is some people acted like they're two different people, like a chain gang movie. You know, you know, you have, you know, the, they're sort of chained together, but really there's Jesus of Nazareth, you know, and then there's this, and they just happen to be working together. And so, no, there's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Lord. They're, they're one Lord Jesus Christ, not two people or something working together. It's not a team. Okay. There's the emphasizing the unity. So we have the word one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God. We really talk only Son of God. Now we have to emphasize what's important is He's not created. Right? You know, we're going to find Arius is going to say, well, he's a creature. Saying, no, he's begotten, not created. He's begotten. We had begotten in there. Unless we miss this, eternally begotten of the Father. He's God from God. So he's not something different than the Father. He has the same substance, usia, substantia. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. He shares the same being of one usia, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. So we expand it to be clear, the, the, who Jesus is. You know, that he is not, a lot of people have reduced him, like another common thing we'll see when we talk about the councils was, uh, that Jesus was this guy minding his own business, and suddenly what happens is that his baptism, you know, God sort of takes him because he needs a body. <laughs> God in a bod. You know, sort of takes Jesus and sort of uses him to, you know, <laughs> to go around. Saying, no, it's not like that. He becomes incarnate, emphasized. Okay. Now, then we have in accordance with the scriptures. One of the, this is very important to us. 
is, especially if you're taking a modern, like in some of your biblical studies classes, this is a matter of faith to us. Um, we look at the Old Testament a lot. The Lord Jesus, on the very night that he, of his resurrection, he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And what does he do then? He says he showed them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Okay. Now, a lot of people today say, well, that's Christians reading that stuff into it. You know, that maybe that's pious and nice thought, but it's not really there. That's, you know. And we're, the emphasis here is we believe that the Old Testament truly predicted Jesus in accordance with the scriptures, that, that the scriptures really are speaking about Jesus. This is not us piously looking back and finding, hey, it's sort of like an analogy here, saying, no, the scriptures are truly speaking of Jesus. It's saying that the Old Testament truly is a witness to Jesus. We'll talk more later. I'm going to talk to you about Christ in the Old Testament and things. But that's an article of faith for us. Actually, in the church's oldest theology, if you look at the very earliest apologies we have, that was a central thought with the predictions of Christ. So again, that's where we fundamentally differ for a lot of your scholars. Well, it's a nice, pious thought, Christians looking back and reading that. Exegesis means we, we pull the meaning out of a text, exegesis. But there's also eisegesis. You know, we can read something into a text. You know, we can... And, a lot of non-believing scholars say, well, they're just Christians reading. It's, it's sweet. You know, they're reading this into the text, but it's not actually there. Saying, no, we're saying it's an article of faith. It is there. Jesus said this, that, you know, scriptures have to be fulfilled. This is in the scriptures. Again and again, the Old New Testament is filled with quotations. Out of the mouth of Jesus himself, 46 times, uh, you know, he's talking about this refers to me, etc. So there's no question, you know, so that's an article of faith for us. And his kingdom will have no end. So the question is not like uh, when we talk about he's subjected to the Father and then you know, God is all in all, but you know, he'll always reign. Yeah. What's the significance of light? Yeah, what, what happens here is uh, when we talk about Arius, big, big point, is they would talk about, you could use an analogy of like the sun. Think of it this way. The, the sun, S-U-N, Soleil, okay, <laughs> the sun. Okay. And the sun produces warmth and light, and it comes from the sun, it, you know, it's, it's come, but it's not the sun. You know, it's, you know the, we separate the sun from the light and heat it produces. But this is, no, he's light from light. I mean, it's the same substance. It's not a reflection. It's not, it's not an effect of, 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 of God. It is God. It's light from light. Because they love the thing of, you know, light coming from something. Well, the object itself is not the light. The light is produced by the object. They're different. The, the structure that produces light is different from the light it produces. The candle is not the light it produces. And he's saying, no, it's light from light. It's not, you know, the, that makes sense? Okay, yeah. Okay. So we, uh, the Holy Spirit, in the Apostles' Creed, I love it, all we said in the original, uh, we said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the original Nicene Creed said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That was it. But because this is the time we'll be talking about that, we, had to, we came up more, who is this Holy Spirit? Is it a person? What is it? Is by the First Council of Constantinople, we're saying, he's the Lord, the giver of life. That's something only God does, right? He's the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified who has spoken through the prophets. Now, he's saying he does things that God does. He speaks to the prophets and gives life. Only God can do that. Okay, but also he's honored with God, who's worshipped in glory. Together with the Father, Son, he's worshipped and glorified. So we add that to our doctrine of the Holy Spirit being a full person of the Trinity. He does the things God does, and he receives the honor God receives. He's a member of the Trinity. Forgiveness and resurrection. Uh, notice here it says the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. 
Now, the Nicene Creed, first of all, talks about the church. It says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the important thing here is we are emphasizing the faith of the apostles. Gnostics and things emphasized uh, that there are other, you know, there are, um, there are other teachings. Jesus' secret teachings, all the Gnostic Gospels and things, you know, the deeper teachings. Okay. And we're emphasizing, no, the, the, the authentic teachings of Jesus are the ones we have in the church from the apostles, the actual apostles. And this is, by the way, if you might wonder, the Gospels, uh, oh, I wish I could go to the Gospel studies with you guys. It's amazing. There's a whole section in Matthew that, that, uh, that, um, that emphasizes. For example, in the parables of discourse, remember there are five discourses in Matthew's Gospel. We'll talk about those five discourses. And I don't actually do anything on the four Gospels with you guys. But with Matthew's Gospel, we have on parables, it has two pieces to it. It has parables, then it says, he's doing this in front of everybody. But then it says, the second half of that discourse, it says, then he called his disciples inside. And then he tells them, here's what this means, here's what that means. The point that Matthew's making in there, here's the point, is that he's really answering the charges of saying, no, he's saying, the apostles aren't just any interpreters. Like, hey, here's what Jesus said, here's what we think it means. Here's what we think. No, Jesus actually told them. So the point is they are authoritative. Do you see the difference? They are That's why he makes the big deal about, why, why is he just telling everybody? No, he might come in and say, no. He, they aren't just saying, here's what I think Jesus meant. Saying, no, Jesus himself told us what it meant. That's why we are authoritative interpreters. Okay, that was really big later on. So we're emphasizing it's apostolic. It's the apostles, what the apostles taught, like Paul thinks, they're not just inspired readers. I mean, inspired in general, you know, they're just really good readers. They actually are inspired you know, the, the apostolic faith. And one, there's only one church, the one holy Catholic, you know, the fourth, the four, uh, we have the holy Catholic, but one, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Okay. Okay, the, we have here, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And what they do here is we acknowledge one baptism, they're emphasizing that baptism is a source of forgiveness of sins. One baptism for the forgiveness. They're trying to spell it out. That's where we receive that forgiveness is in our baptism. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Okay. Now, what is the authority for us as Anglicans, since we believe in sola scriptura, is we're saying we believe in the creeds, because they teach what the Bible teaches. I mean, the authority, why the creeds are right is because they are accurate representation of what the Bible teaches. So we don't argue they have some separate thing as they are a faithful representation of what the Bible teaches. Okay, and here's the actual thing for our theological statement, which is based on earlier uh, things in the Church of England. We confess as proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture, the historic faith of the undivided church is declared in the three Catholic creeds. Okay. And so the idea is this is the church's um, witness. Let me tell you something about a guy named Vincent of, um, in English you say Lorenz, Lorenz, I think. He's Vincent Lorrain. Is, is, you know, Lorrain's a little island right off Marseille in south of France. And what happened here is this guy came up with something we call the Vincentian Canon. And here's what he basically said. And he, this guy's the ultimate Anglican. Very often people only get part of his quote. And you realize what an Anglican is, he is when you look at the whole quote. He says, well, he says, Scripture has everything we need for salvation. It's like something out of the 39 articles. You know, Scripture is complete. It has everything we need. So he's not denying Scripture, but he says, but what do we do when people disagree on how to interpret Scripture? Because that happens. We have heretics who say, yeah, we believe Scriptures. We don't know how to interpret it. How do we know what's authentic? 
How do we know? Because the church would be the, is the authoritative interpreter, and he says, what's believed always everywhere by everyone? So he's talking about really how the church has read Scripture together, the consensus reading of the church. So, example, we couldn't finally, some, some would-be scholar at some can suddenly say, well, I think Nicaea is all wrong. The church has got it wrong. You know, I, here's the real answer. You know, the church can't get it all wrong because the Holy Spirit's in the church. When the whole church has agreed on something, you know, the church cannot be wrong in the sense of, you know, when, based on the, in their interpretation of the Scripture. If it's always been believed everywhere by everyone, we can't suddenly come 1,900 years later and think, I guess they're all wrong. Here's the right answer. Always, everyone, everywhere by everyone. Semper omnibus, ubique ab omnibus, is what he says in Latin. So what's a council? We're going to talk about them. Well, let me tell you. Uh, how do you solve problems when people have disagreements? You, honestly, they try and say, I want to understand this. And we have a beautiful example of how the, the earliest church did in apostolic times with the Council of Jerusalem. You know, there's a real, uh, a real disagreement, which is really vital, of does somebody have to become a Jew to become a Christian? Right? That's a really big issue. Do you have to actually follow the Mosaic Law to become a Christian? Uh, this will, by the way, <coughs> will be the key thing which separates us later on and causes a lot of bad blood between us and Jews at the time. Because Judaism was more like Protestantism. It has all sorts of different forms. So Jews are pretty wise. You know, different Jews believe different things. I mean, they believe the Jewish faith, but there are a lot of variants. They were, you're still Jewish. And so the question is, originally, people looked at the church as basically another Jewish sect. You know, it's another kind of Jew. Okay. But the idea, if you actually have a Judaism where you don't have to follow the law of Moses, this seems to be an existential challenge to Judaism. Because they're defining Judaism as being defined by the 613 commandments of the Torah. You know, if you deny that, you know, that is Judaism, is what their point. And so that is going, that's why this became such a dr dramatic thing. If you go here, we're going to have pushback because they're going to say this will be the end of Judaism. No Moses, no Judaism. It was the view. Of the, and so <coughs> this, that's why it was so hard fought. And so what happens here, what did they do? Well, they got together. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider the matter. And after much debate, Notice, they didn't come to Peter and say, hey, Peter, what's the right answer? This is not like Peter was not a pope. He was a spokesman. They say, hey, Pete, what's the answer? Actually, Peter gives testimony on his personal experience, but they don't ask him for the answer. James is the actual one who, is, who runs the council. James, brother of the Lord, who is the bishop of Jerusalem, who is the chief guy in Jerusalem. And notice how they look upon their decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they looked upon, the Holy Spirit was acting. When they came together and prayed, what do the scriptures mean? We're trying to understand the scriptures. That decision was considered inspired. You know, when the whole church gathered and said, this, we put ourselves, but what's the right answer? This is, though, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And so this is the uh, first, as you had the idea of councils, <coughs> is everyone gets together. Now, in the post-apostolic period, we take the same basic um, approach, is when a problem came up, typically what you'd have is a synod. What a synod means, synod is Greek with, okay, and autos means coming. It means coming together. The exact Latin equivalent is convention. Venere is to come, con, with, come together. So a synodos is the same thing as a conventio. It's where people come together. And it meant the bishops of each of the churches would come together in a region and say, we have a problem, we have to settle it together. Because there's one church. So we, we just can't make our own decisions. It's one church, so we have to make a decision when there's something. 
So they would come together and they deal with doctrine or discipline, like some bishop is misbehaving and we have to deal with this. We can't have, somebody has to hold bishops accountable. Like in the ACNA, as being an Anglican church and any of the Catholic churches, uh, you know, our bishop, Stuart, is part of the body of the House of Bishops. And we've had, like there is a bishop who was recently removed for cause from one of our, um, one of our dioceses because there were complaints and we have a process for dealing with The bishops are the ones who do that. They maintain, you know, they mutually ensure accountability. Okay. Okay, now larger gatherings. Now normally what would happen, these were local gatherings in the area, normally within a Roman province. They'd be there. Why? Because first of all, it was very hard to travel in the ancient world. Very, very difficult. And uh, the second thing was that uh, there were persecutions and things. You couldn't, you know, it was just, it wasn't just I decided to go, it wasn't just practical travel plans. However, later on what's going to happen is once the empire, first of all, is open to Christianity, then adopts it, suddenly there's no reason we can't get together. I mean, theory, there's no persecution to worry about. We can just get together. We can have universal councils, general councils, not just the churches here in North Africa, the churches in southern, southern Gaul, the churches in Italy. We can have, everybody can get together. Okay. So that changes with Constantine. Now, these are what we call, there are two factors that led to the general councils to understand this. Let me tell you something about history you might not know about why the Roman Empire converts to Christianity. If you're Word and Table, you probably already know this if you're Word and Table fans, but you might not even know Word of Table exists. But it's like this. The Roman Empire, in, in, in traditional societies, religion is the common, it's like law, it's something that binds everyone together. In Romans, you can have additional religious stuff, but there has to be a core there because it's the basis of how we make basic decisions as a people, what we all agree is right and wrong. Okay. And the trouble became is by the third century, the Roman Empire wants to get serious about the Christian menace. You know, up to that time, they said, we got to do something. And so there was around the great persecutions in 258, around the thousandth anniversary of the, um, of the founding of Rome, uh, make Rome great again. Uh, there was this thing, let's go back to the basics, etc. And it was a really rough time, Decius, you know, Decian persecution and like a really, really rugged time. But when we come out of this, guess what people pretty realize is, you know, Christians aren't going anywhere. It's so because it's, you know, the, the, the ancient religion had really run into rough times. I mean, it really had just fallen on bad times. Okay, they tried to revive it with something called neo-paganism. Neo-paganism is what was like, think of the modern liberal churches and you got it. Modern liberal churches don't actually believe in these things, but they say, well, Christianity has so much beauty in it. Why don't we interpret it like stories and things that we can have, you know, the, he didn't actually rise, but it's, it symbolizes our hope. You know, the, we just can, we can put on a gloss of meaning and that's called neo-paganism. So people said, we don't believe the rest of Jupiter, but you know what it is, is this is a nice story about certain things about, you know, they tried to reinterpret, it didn't work. So basically they come to the conclusion, you know, if we're going to have one religion, which we need to have as an empire, a shared religion, if you can't beat them, join them. So basically, Constantine represents, if we're going to unite, it's going to be Christianity. It won't be paganism. Paganism's out of steam. You know, that's a, that's, that's a dying, uh, wasting asset. So this means if one of the key things the religion exists to do is to unite, that means the empire now has a thing of saying, we can't have you dividing. So that's why the empire, why Constantine calls a council. He's not religious, 
I mean, in that sense, what bothers him is, look, we have Christianity now as our religion. We can't have multiple forms of it. We've got to agree we can't have the church dividing because it defeats the whole purpose. That'll explain how the state gets involved in this. <coughs> so that's why he's the one who calls the first ecumenical council. Ecumene in Greek, that says you be any, not emi, ecumene, uh, was basically the world accounted. It meant places where people, people spoke Latin and Greek. The, the, Latin, the Greco-Roman world was the ecumene, not the whole world. But it's the circle where all the people you'd want to know <laughs> is the ecumene, okay, the inhabited earth, the Greco-Roman world. Now, let me explain the pattern of a council. Before you look at here, I'm going to tell you it's an easy way to understand a council. I'm going to give you an example. You're all young people, so you would know this better than anyone. Does everyone know is a, um, a DTR is? Okay, well, if you understand a DTR, you understand a church council. <coughs> the same basic notion. A DTR has three steps. Step one is we all thought we knew where this relationship was. The point is it comes from a misunderstanding. We think we don't, we're on the same page. So you're, let's say, finishing your senior year. And, you know, you're with the woman you love, you know, you're there and we're about to graduate and you assume pretty much we're go this is going somewhere, etc. And suddenly she's mentioning job interviews and mentioning a job in California and she's not mentioning you. And you say, wait, I thought we were to get an item, but I'm not being mentioned at all in this context. Did I miss something? Am I in the wrong story? Uh, you know. Uh, that, that's the idea. So normally the DTR define the relationship is we thought we knew where we were. We thought we were on the same page. That's what we say define. But we aren't apparently. Something happens to tell you maybe we're not on the same page. That's the first thing. And that, for us, that's normally heresies. What heresies do, like Arius, is everyone said Jesus was the Son of God. Everyone agreed on that. No one denied that. It's in the New Testament. And we all thought we knew what we meant when we said that term. But Arius said, well, no, actually we say Son of God. That would mean different from God because, you know, a father has to be older than the son, which makes him superior. He had pre-existed, you know, he's got to be the real God. You know, he's got to be the real thing as opposed to them because he's earlier, etc. Christ can't really be God. Maybe he has divine quality, like the light coming out of, you know, of the sun or something. Maybe he has, well, he's not, he's not the same. He's different fundamentally. So you say, whoa, that's not what I understood by he's the son of God. But everyone's using the same term. So we do what we call, now the next thing in DTR, you articulate this. So you put words on it. So I say, look. I thought we really loved each other and that we were thinking that we were sort of in agreement to get engaged. You know, we were just talking about when we get engaged. That's articulation. We actually, the technical term we use is definition. Fines in Latin are lines. So the definition is to put lines around something, boundaries. So we're going to try to put words on it. So I tell you, here's what I think the relation. I'm not trying to create a new relationship. I think I thought this is where we were. I'm simply trying to define what's always been there. So I'm not trying to create anything new. I'm simply trying to say, here's what I thought we all agreed on. I'm trying to put words on where I thought we were. So that's the definition. That's what councils do. But that's not the end of the story. I've just told that to you, and now here's the hard part. That's not the end of the story. You've got to react to my articulation. You could say, yes, you know, that's exactly where we are. Or you could say, whoa, I, I, I don't want to wreck our beautiful friendship by, you know, <laughs> By, by romance. I, you know, our friendship is too precious to wreck with it. You know, you know I'd, I'd <laughs> uh, yeah, a knife through the heart. Okay, a knife through the heart. Okay. And that's what, we, uh, that's what we call is reception. So what happens with the council is 
the church and heresy comes up, there's a serious issue on something we thought we understood. We thought we were in the same place, but clearly it's come up now that we are not in the same place. The council tries to say, here's what we think that place is. But that's not the end of it. It now goes back to people and they say, it, and they can say, the people of God can say, yeah, that's right. That's, or they say, whoa, what were you guys thinking? What were you smoking? That is not what we believe. That's what happened with Arianism. Later on, they'd have the councils that were not recognized. They would say, and that's people said, well, that is not what we learned. So, you know, that's like one thing. No, I, you know, I really like your good friend and somebody, but there's no way we're spending a life together. You know, the best thing about graduating was you be staying. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's, if you understand the idea, like a DTR, then you understand a church council. A problem arises. We have to get together and define what the church's position is. But we have, the people of God have to recognize it. They have to receive that. Yes, they come back. If they don't, it means the council made a mistake. Okay, so the... Uh, so, yes? Um, that process all sounds very democratic. But it's, it, that, that, it doesn't sound like that's where you want to push us in an objectivity. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound that way. It's not all a democracy. I understand that, but I want to be clear that yeah. that's clear. No, not at all. Uh, what we're doing, again, that's why I emphasize, we're talking about, it's like, um, it's not, first of all, the people who are in a council are only the bishops. So it's not a matter, you know, the bishops are the one because they're responsible for teaching. Um, did I ever explain to you the difference, but there are two different types of teaching, uh, which are important when we talk about the roles of, you know, teachers in the church. Is, everyone knows that there's in American, um, the American system of education, a difference is a master's degree and a doctoral degree. Well, I bet you didn't know this, the word master's degree comes from the Latin word magister. And magister is a word for teacher. And a doctor is simply the Latin word for a teacher. Docio is to teach in Latin. And doctor is someone who teaches. Not a medical doctor, that's a medicus. Okay, there's a story why they end up with the title. <coughs> so why do we have two different, um, different things? It's like this. Sometimes, you know, first of all, when you get a bachelor's degree, it means simply you know, you know the basic stuff about a subject. That doesn't mean you could actually teach somebody else, but you know the basic things to practice. A teaching degree, a magister, a master's degree, meant you know enough to actually teach what you've learned. It means any of the problems you've solved, you'd be able not to explain to other people. It doesn't mean you could solve new problems. A doctoral degree meant you could solve new problems. You know, if something comes up no one's seen before, that's why to get a PhD, you have to actually do original research. It's not, you know, you have to do original research to show that you can deal with brand new problems. Okay. So what happens here is the bishops are the ones, they dokeo, you know, they, they, uh, they, you know they, they are the ones who are teachers in the sense that they set doctrine. You know, they enunciate doctrine, not in the sense of just like what we always said, repeating the words, they help to enunciate this. So it's the teachers of the church who come usually together. And again, they're not deciding what it should be. They're trying to put words on what the church has believed. They're witness to what the actual belief of the church is. And they're not taking a vote. And other people aren't reacting to what they think it should be. They're simply saying, here's, um, it's like with a foreign language, if you're saying, does this sound right? And you're asking a lot of, you know, native speakers. You're saying, does that sound right to you? And, you know, they're simply saying, no, that doesn't sound right. You're saying, I'm a native speaker of English. That just doesn't sound right. <laughs> it's a witness to that. So it's not saying a multiple. You're just simply saying it's a, it's a witness to what's, uh, you know, what's the church's understanding.
Well, it's true. I wanted to tell you, we did have a problem because the state wanted to have unity. And sometimes the state wanted unity. They would, they would, the state would be inclined towards what seemed to be the easiest solution to sell. So the state, we're going to find one of the crises in the early church in the Arian heresy, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's good, is going to be, is they think semi-Arianism is easier to sell. You know, it's easier to work down than go up. You know, we could get people to go on this. We could have something that would please everybody. But notice the church wouldn't accept that, despite real tries. I mean, it was really hard fought. The church said, that is not our faith. So the trouble is we had to live with the state. That was a practical thing, but actually we can prove that the uh, multiple times we, in fact, resisted the state's attempt. Ambrose was famous about saying the state has no say on the church. So, the, you know, when the church, they sort of tried to get involved. And I told you why they got involved. Their view is our job is to make sure that there's unity. But even Constantine didn't say what his choice was. He has a council said, my job is you're the, you're the guys, you're the theologians here. You get, come up with the answer, but we can't have people dividing. With Donatus, this is a group that split over... Um, during the persecutions under Decius, what had happened is a lot of people had lost, you know, denied Jesus in the persecutions. And the question is, should they be restored? And some people who had really been very, were, who, had, who had faithfully witnessed were upset that other people who had them were being readmitted to the church. So they formed a separate church. They said, we're the true church. These people are. And, you know, later on, they, they cracked down on the Donatists because Donatists actually stayed around for 200 years. But, you know, the state comes in and cracks down on, but again, they, in their worldview, like we did here in Europe until, you know, uh, very recent times, it was assumed that the church was something, that, you know, religion was something because we had a, a conflict between state and faith, I mean, religion and faith. To me, I want to say to you, religion is a sociological fact. You know, everyone has religion. Since, to me, I would think there's a lot of, you know, everyone has, in the old times, used to have religion. Faith is different. Faith is real. I mean, it's the, the truth of God given to us. But everyone has religion. The trouble is with Christianity, like anyone else, all the way through the Reformation, is we had to somehow balance those two things out because we were Christians in a society that interpreted faith in terms of religion. That whatever we choose, it's going to be, have to be everybody. You know, like, look at Luther, you know, cuius eo, cuius, uh, cuius, uh, cuius, uh, religio. Who's cuius regio, eius religio? I think that's it. Okay, whoever's landed is that's his religion, you know. But the the idea with that, but so the thing I would say to you is, we it's not what there's it's not true that we the state set that for us, because the number one thing the state tried everything to get us to go to semi-Arianism or Arianism, everything, and the church just wouldn't do it, uh, even when most of the bishops were were under the pressure and did it. The people of God would not accept it, said, this is not our faith. So I think that's the thing we should say is, yeah, they certainly tried, but they didn't succeed. Okay, now why do we as Anglicans care about this? Because we say scripture is fundamental. Is we say that the, why we think the councils are important is they're a faithful witness to what did the whole church believe. You know, we think how we read the scripture together. The reason the councils are important is they give us honest witness as to what the church actually has believed. Otherwise, we're sort of guessing. I wonder what they... No, we know. The councils tell us the church got together and told us what they believe. So it's a witness to how the church read the scriptures. And that's uh, critical to us. And their authority comes from the fact that they're faithful to scripture. You know, their authority ultimately comes from their faithfulness to scripture. Okay. 
Now we say here, look, as we say, concerning the seven councils of the undivided church, we affirm the teaching. You know, the undivided is that Vincent the Loren thing. It's because it's the whole church is agreeing, essentially, is what makes it authoritative here. The first, we say, we affirm the teachings of the first four councils and the Christological clarification of the fifth, sixth, and seventh councils. Why do we make that distinction? Okay? It's because of this. What, remember we talked about it has to be a challenge comes up, it has to be articulated, and then it has to be received. Well, when it came to the last three councils, they didn't agree on everything. You know, the, sometimes in the council they had not reached uh, agreement on things. And we say the things we did all agree on were the Christological definitions. Therefore, they're authoritative. But there are some other things we did not agree all agree on. And therefore, they're not binding. The, what creates the, the power of the council is not a democracy, but we have more votes. Is Did they actually reach a decision which was recognized across the church. And when they didn't, we say it doesn't have the authority, it doesn't have the authority. Those last three councils did not. They had elements that were, which are the Christological definition. We'll talk about what they are specifically. But again, their authority comes from the fact that they faithfully represent what the scriptures teach. So what did we have at each one of these councils? Let's start, first of all, with Nicaea, the original ecumenical council. Okay? This is... Um, in 325, it was presided over by Constantine. And the problem was Arius of Alexandria. He was a priest in Alexandria. And here's what motivated Arius, so you understand he wasn't a bad soul, is in a pagan world, the number one problem you had in the pagan world was everybody, believing there were multiple gods was the most normal thing in the world. Because remember, gods had nothing to do with being holy and that kind of thing. They're just, they're just like another level of life went up. And so their trouble is people were really worried that this Jesus being the son of God was, would be misunderstood as polytheism. Yeah, see, you have multiple gods too. We understand that. Like, duh, we do too. So they were worried it would be misunderstood. So Arius, you know, saying, how do we explain to people and things? And he was saying, well, well there is a distinction. You know, there, it's not, there is only one God. But you know, the son isn't, God, that's where you have things like light. You know, the light coming from the sun, the warmth from the sun are not the sun itself. You know, they have qualities of the sun and things, but they're not actually the sun itself type of thing. And so he argued the sun was actually created in the sense that only God alone, the Father, was the only one from the beginning. There was a time without a sun. Okay. Uh, there was a time before the sun existed. He said because the Father has to come before you have a son. And he said he's created out of nothing. Uh, not of the same substance as the father. You know, he wasn't, you know, the, the father's DNA, as it were. He was just a create. He was a creature. Okay, an exalted one, a very high creature, but he's a creature. Okay, and that solves the problem of two gods. There's only one God, God the Father. You know, and Jesus is divine. You still have Jehovah Witnesses who are Arians still talking about. They'll talk about Jesus. They talk, he's not God, he's divine in the sense of he has those qualities of warmth and light, you know, but that doesn't make him the son in S-U-N, Okay. Okay, the decision at the council, and by the way, the person who really saved the day, because the, the, the empire was pushing this, because it was much easier to work down than to go up. You know, <laughs> to demand Jesus' divinity is a harder sell than to say, well, let's just put it in the broader terms, you know, leave that. And is Athanasius. There's a famous thing, Athanasius Contramundum, against the world. This was like a one man at time was the only one saying, this is not what the church teaches as far as the thing. So Athanasius was the one who kept it all going. He's an amazing man. He has a critical role in Christian theology uh, at this critical juncture. We'll talk about why it was so critical in a minute. So Athanasius is the one who really led the fight against Darius. 
Now, okay, so what happens at Nicaea, uh, this is still Nicaea 1, okay, is we have a creedal definition. As we said before, we're saying we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten, not a creature, right? Eternally begotten of the Father. He's God from God. You know, he's actually God himself. He shares the same. He's light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being. Look at this word, homoousios. I want you to really look at that because there's a trick that everyone's going to tell you, so I want you to hear it from me, okay? Notice there are double O's, like, like little I's here, there. Homoousios means of one being. Ousios is being, ousia is being, and homo means the same. Homo Usia, make an adjective, homoousios, means of one being. There's a very similar word that has a single letter different that means something very different we're going to. Okay, so that's what homoousios means. We translate it in Latin as consubstantial, means sharing consubstantia, sharing the same substance. Okay. Why is this so important? Is Think about this. Is... If we're talking about, uh, we think about uh, soteriology, our, the, the saving, our salvation, how that happens. Well, if Christ were just a man, you know, if one, you know, Adam commits a sin, and Paul talks, let me quote Paul, that's a better way. Paul says, you know, there's, there's no comparison between the first Adam and the second, the first man and the second man. Why? The first man, one lousy sin, and he wrecks it for everybody. We have now billions of sins because we're not innocent bystanders. We've all participated. Okay. He said, how come one man after all of that? You know, you'd think if one man sinned, how much would it take to get rid of all the sins of the billions of people who followed Adam's path? We don't just have one sin to undo. We have billions of sins. So how can one man, you know, doing the right thing, undo billions of people doing the wrong thing? It'd be enough one-on-one. He says, that's what he said, there's no comparison between the two. And so what makes it possible is because he was God is what gave the importance to what he did. If he were just another guy, at best you could say, oh, that's sweet. It's symbolic, but it certainly doesn't make up for the fact that billions of people have sinned, that one guy does the right thing. But when that one person is God himself, it's his divinity that gives power to what he does. Otherwise, the, the power is robbed from it. No human being alone could have that power. So we have to emphasize the divinity of Christ is essential for his, otherwise it's just sweet. It's just a, like, you know, just a sweet sign, but it doesn't do anything. We're saying there's power in the blood. You know, it really does something because it's God himself. Now the second council of Constantinople, the second council of this century, okay, is we have the Pneutomachians, which means spirit fighters. <laughs> That means they, were, they opposed the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe the Holy Spirit was a, a person. You know, it just, you know, they didn't see it that way. And the people who really help us here is Athanasius began dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He began exploring that. But the person who really does the job is Basil of, of Caesarea. Basil the Great. He truly is great. I mean, you have to read his on the Holy Spirit. He's the guy who really came up with this. Now, the trouble is he dies two years before the council. So the one who brings, takes the ship home, you know, leads us into harbor, is going to be Gregory of Nazianzus. He also helped, but big, you know, by, by the time we actually have the council, Basil's dead. And so Nazianzus brings the ship into port. Okay. So the argument, some people argue, the people who are the, the, the spirit fighters, in Greek, the, I love the, the spirit fighters, they said the Holy Spirit was created and wasn't equal with the Father and the Son. He's like breathing out or something. He's just, you know, an energy, something. He's a creation. He's not of their essence. Okay, 
the decision was the Holy Spirit was not created, but proceeds. Right? He's not a creature. He proceeds. Like the Son is begotten, he proceeds. And he's equal with the Father and the Son, for the reasons we talked about. Okay? And the creedal left, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, that's a title for God, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really, the, the difference is that Christ is described as the only begotten Son of the Father. So we know and there's something unique about Christ in the New Testament because he's described not only as begotten, but the only begotten in the New Testament. So we know for a fact, so we have to say that somehow the Holy Spirit is different. And the actual difference is the fact that he's, instead of coming directly and uniquely from the Father, you know, the Holy Spirit comes somehow from the Father through, or from the Father and the Son, through them. And we describe that two-step, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that additional thing is described, we had to come up with a word to describe that, is saying proceed, because we think if we, th- in thinking sequentially, even in a, not a temporal world, you know, the Father comes before the Son in the sense of the logical, you know, the Father gives, the Son receives, and the Holy Spirit between them. So we're looking at so he's the next in line, proceeds, understanding it, he's the next in line, proceeds. Spira is simply to breathe out, he's the Holy Spirit. So they argue the Father, the Father and the Son, if you're in the West, together breathe him out, looking at beginning, is, is just a, it's just an analogy. Yeah, it's just trying to say he's not the same, his relationship to the Father is different than, than the relationship of Jesus to the Father, because everything is contrary. The only reason we have different names is because of their differences. And why is Jesus different than the Holy Spirit? But actually, he's not in Mormonism, by the way. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' brother in Mormonism, which has some, some logic here. He's saying, you know, they're just like two brothers. Okay, but, but they're not, we're saying, because they have a different origin. You know, the, the difference between them is the Son comes directly and only from the Father, whereas the, somehow the Holy Spirit comes from the Father, but the Son is involved. There's no Holy Spirit without the Son. You know, and they somehow, whether it be together, acting as a single unit, or the Father through the Son, somehow he's coming. And we, we try to create a word to describe the fact that it's different from the direct coming from the Father, which is beginning, so we invented the word proceed. And it probably came to the fact that Jesus describes in, in the economy that the, fa- the, the fa- Father sends the so- Spirit through the Son, so proceeds comes out from, you know, proceeds, you know, he sort of comes out from. The Father sends the Son, who sends the Holy Spirit. He's sort of next in line in the in salvation economy. Okay. So look at additional contribution is after Nicaea, Nicaea was hard fought. People were not, and many people in important places were not happy with the Nicaea. And especially hated the homoousios, saying he's of the same being with the Father. They wanted to give Christ a separate, na- a separate being from the Father. So the, the most popular was homoousios. They add an I between those two O's. It's like putting on glasses, now you have a nose. Instead of just having two eyes, you have a nose. See, in the middle of the eye, in the middle of that. And in Greek, instead of meaning same nature, it means like nature. You know, uh, equivalent nature. Means, homoousios means equivalent. Not the same, different, you know, equivalent maybe, but not the same. So they were trying, could you work with that? They call it seminarianism. Because we're going to argue, yeah, it's equivalent, you know, it's equivalent, it's not a lower, but it's not exactly the same as the Father. 
okay? And the other people really, homeo simply means he resembles. <laughs> Homios, you know, sort of like he resembles. That was really, those were the outliers, okay? And they rejected both of those. They said, we're keeping exactly the homoousius. He is of the same being, you know, not like, not, you know, not equivalent, not similar. He is of the same being. They reaffirm that. The third council, next century, is Ephesus. And what we see here in, Eph- in this century is going to be there are two basic, um, uh, oh, we played, okay. We have two basic schools of thought, not schools in the sense of set up, but schools of thought. I know people sometimes uh, are trying to play this down on modern times, but I think it's still very sound. Uh, people are always looking for new things with scholarship. But is you basically say people in Alexandria, Alexandria was a thoroughly Greek-cultured city. I mean, hundred the Jews there couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. Right? That's why we have the translation of the Bible. It's thoroughly Greek. And so they tended to, to evaluate things in Greek categories. They were very, very conscious of logical problems. You know, their theology is often driven by logic. You know, how was it fit with philosophy? We probably more identify in some ways uh, from our background of the Reformation with the group in Antioch. Antioch, by the way, was the second city of the empire. A lot of people don't realize that. Antioch was a really important city. Uh, you know, huge city, or the third city, rather, you know, uh, between second and third uh, of the empire. And what happens in Antioch is people there, Antioch, even though the city was Greek, the hinterland was all Semitic. I mean, these were people who spoke Semitic languages, Aramaic and things. And so they looked at the Bible much more like we did. They were very much more interested in the Bible, the actual story, you know, the Bible, studying the Bible as Bible, as opposed to all the philosophical understandings, the origin type of things. They were very much more like Bible scholars. What's the story? You know, they, they were much more on a uh, prosaic level about the scriptures as opposed to the philosophy. How does this fit together? And we're going to find this century is basically balancing out those two, two approaches. Now, the first problem we had was Nestorianism. Nestorius was actually from Antioch. What he became the, the, the bishop of, a, we call him a patriarch for Constantinople, the new capital city, he became the patriarch. But he definitely comes from the view of the scripture. He said, well, he really treats Christ as being a combination of two different people. Is you have the eternally be- word of God, the eternal word of God, and then you have Jesus of Nazareth. And the, that's what I call the chain gang approach. And here's where, where the battle cry began. You know, remember the main type of thing? Remember the Alamo? The battle cry became Mary, you know, was the mother of Jesus. She bore Jesus. Does that make her the mother of God? And he said, oh, no, no. She's simply, she bared, she's the, in great Greek, the word Theotokos means the one who bears God, or, you know, we could have Christotokos is the one who bears Christ. He said, no, no, she's only bearing Jesus, because we can't, se- Jesus is different, so she's only, and the thing is, the Alexandria says you can't separate, yes, it's true, Christ has two, two natures, he's truly God and truly man, but there's only one Lord Jesus Christ, they're not two people, and so you, if you have Jesus, you have it all, so if Jesus is in her womb, he, is, he can't be just Jesus. He's also, so in that extent, a theotokos is the better term because it, you know, saying she's bearing God too. Mother might sound she's not the origin of God, you know, but in any event, they use the term, but that's why we call it, that's the big thing. Is she mother of God or is she just mother of Jesus of Nazareth? Saying, no, you can't separate the two. Jesus is one single person, not a combination of two people working in tandem. 
And so that's what we emphasize. The decision is, they said, two persons is Christ. It's only the human that suffers and dies. And Mary is the mother of only the human. And where decision is, Jesus is a single person with two natures. He's one Lord, truly God and truly man. You know, he's a person. Natures don't function, people function. He's a person. The one Lord Jesus Christ does things. And therefore, Mary is the God-bearer, the Theotokos, or the Mater Theu, the mother of God, as you see in the icons. Now, the fourth council is Chalcedon. By the way, some Nestorians, you still find a lot of them, is outside of the empire. Nestorians tended to be on the Silk Road up to China. They were destroyed. So basically, Christian communities, the small, uh, you know, going along the, the Silk Road into China and things, you still find Nestorians. It still exists as a church. They're still Nestorians. Okay, outside. Okay. The fourth council was Chalcedon, and this goes the other direction. Okay. Once we say we won't divide the two, is monophysitism. Now, let me help you here. First of all, let me tell you about Chalcedon. Uh, if your Greek is rusty, is C-H before the letters A, O, and U is always a K, K sound. Okay? So that's how you can know. That, you know, it's basically C-H between A, O, and U is always pronounced as K. So it's not Chalcedon. It's Chalcedon. And it's not Chalcedon. No, it's Chalcedon is how it's pronounced in English. Okay. Because a lot of us read these things and we've never actually heard it. And one of the challenges of English is like people whine that when they learn French and Spanish, they have to learn gender. You have no idea. In English, you have to learn accents because they're completely arbitrary. Uh, there are, each word has its own accent. Mechanical and mechanical aren't the same thing. You have to memorize every word. Okay, so in any event here, it's uh, Chalcedon is how it's pronounced. Okay, now, in, whenever you say mono, put the accent on the second O. Monophysitism is the problem. It's not monophysitism, it's monophysitism is the proper noun. Monophysitism, just put the accent there. Monophysitism, okay. It means one nature. So how do you explain that? Okay, and that's, you can check it out, that actually is the official standard pronunciation. I know there are a lot of people who will say monophysitism and things like that, but it's actually monophysitism. So you can amaze your friends. Okay, now, that means in Greek, one nature. Now, here's what they argued. We know Jesus is truly human, truly divine, but they say it's like this. What happens if you take a drop of honey, this is their actual example, and, and drop it in the ocean? The ocean is so vast that the honey is lost. I mean, it's completely absorbed. They say that's what happened when Christ's divinity and humanity met, as humanity was completely super, uh, consumed. So there's only one nature left in Christ, his divine nature. There is no other nature. He's simply purely 100% divine because the, the rest was absorbed into his divinity. That's called monophysitism. Okay. The Eutychus was the man who preached this. Um, okay. Uh, he preached this. And it seemed like you're just going against Nestorianism. You know, get another step. You know, don't forget, not they're just on two people. There's just one nature. I mean, there's nothing. Jesus is just, you know, just this divine, divine person. And the decision was no. The big person here is Leo. Uh, Leo of Rome sent a tome that really gave the definitive definitions we use to this day. And Jesus Christ is true God and true man, a single person with two distinct natures. One person, but two distinct natures. And that's without confusion. I mean, he's really a human being in every sense. He has his own mind, his own will. Uh, in every sense, he's a human being. And as God, in every sense, he's fully and completely God. 
So they're not mixed. It's not like being God compromises humanity and being human doesn't compromise his divinity. He, you know, two natures, but together forming a single person, the person of Jesus Christ. Distinct but inseparable. The decree of the council, what we have here, is following them, the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This selfsame one is perfect both in deity and in humanness. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man, with a rational soul and body. He is of the same reality as God as for his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we ourselves as far as hum his humanness is concerned. Thus, in, he's like us in all respects except for sin. So you get the idea, they're saying, okay, that he's fully God and fully man, but he's still only one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, they talk here, continuing with the decree, we talk about the, the two natures without confusing the two, the distinctiveness of each other is not nullified. And why this is important, it explains a lot of things we have in Scripture. When Jesus says, the Father is greater than I am, that's the, speaking of his human nature. All the things that show weakness and things in spirit are speaking of the human nature within Christ. And when he says, I and the Father are one, before Abraham was, I am. That's not true of his human nature, but it is true of his divine nature. So this dealt with the issue of in the New Testament, sometimes Jesus speaks himself as God, and other times clearly he's speaking in a way that wouldn't be consistent with being God. He's talking about being inferior to the Father, etc., and they're simply saying that's anything like that is to weakness and things is referring to his human nature within the one Jesus. Anything referring to his uh, supremacy is referring to his divine nature. But it's still one Lord Jesus Christ. That's Chalcedon. Now, again, there were some people who would not accept Chalcedon, and they're still around with us. Is those people, for example, the Egyptian cops are, are non-Chalcedonians. You know, so the cops of northern Egypt, the Christians of northern Egypt, are, 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 not, are not Chalcedonians. They, they didn't accept the council. Okay. And we also have some non-Chalcedonians elsewhere in the Middle East. You know, some, uh, some did not, a few uh, of those. Okay. However, I, there's a big difference I've got to tell you here, though, between uh, this Chalcedon and um, Ephesus. With Nestorius... This wasn't a quarrel over words. It really was a quarrel in substance. When it came to mono, monophysitism, it was more a quarrel of words when we look back on it. Because right now we are, we are in complete, we are in communion with the Coptic Church. Because they're willing, we, are, we have agreed that, we, that some of those words, we can come to a common understanding of what that means. That we tend to agree now in the light of things in the 20th century. Like even the, the Orthodox Church, you know, it gives communion to people who are Copts saying that, you know, this was more a quarrel. We still would like to keep, keep the words, but it's more a quarrel in some ways. Whereas Nestorian was, was, wasn't just a quarrel of words. It was really a quarrel of substance. This tended to be more of how we phrase things. They didn't deny he really suffered, this kind of thing. It was a bizarre, um, a, tragic, um, uh, a tragic thing. The important is, why is it important we emphasize the humanity of Christ? I told you why it's important we emphasize his divinity. His humanity is important because, as one of the fathers put, he can't save what he doesn't assume. You know, what Christ saves is he assumes our humanity. He cannot save what he does not assume. Okay, so the, uh, therefore, Christ wasn't really like us. He couldn't, you know, really, he couldn't, he could not take on our sins 
for us. So uh, that's the, really the critical thing. His humanity makes it possible for him to do this. If he doesn't assume the fullness of our humanity, and also the, the thing becomes that if he's truly lost his human nature, that means, well, then how could he be really be tempted? I mean, it just looked like it'd be like docetism is the belief that it just appeared that way. But big deal if you're not, you know, if you're not tempted. But you know, he really was. His humanity was real. He really felt fear in the garden. You know, that, that's, it's real, not, you know, his human nature made that possible. So we emphasize his humanness is important to make what he does on the cross meaningful, as opposed to just walking through a play. Oh, I hurt. <laughs> you know, now I know, really. <laughs> now, the fifth general council is at Constantinople II. What we have here in the next century, 553, a lot of time goes by, we're saying that we're, we're going to, uh, we, have to, we always have to worry about overreactions. So it's like we're almost, some people want to go back to Nestorianism in some way. So all we do is basically get the boat, uh, you know, even keel again. We say, no, no, folks, is, both are true. We have to emphasize it's one Lord Jesus Christ, but fully human and fully divine. We, you don't go one way or the other. Some people want to go, now that we are against these monophysites, you know, uh, monophysites, you know, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to go back now and become historians in, re in response, we have to make sure to keep an even keel. Okay, one person despite the two natures, emphasized again. Now the sixth general council, Constantinople, Constantinople III, good place to meet. Okay, what we have here is uh, monothelitism, rather, monothelitism. Thelos in uh, Greek means will. And so the question did, did Christ have a single will for his two natures? For we think what makes me is I have a will. You know, there's things I want to do as a person. And they're saying, well, some people try to say, well, it's true that, um, that they're, they're two different natures, but they shared one single will, which would make temptation impossible. If you shared the same will, that wouldn't be. And the point is, we say, like in the scriptures, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. You know, that kind of thing. So the, the orthodox treatment is, no, Christ does have a human will and a divine will. And the beautiful thing is he perfectly aligns his will with the will of the Father. So his will is perfectly aligned with the Father, but he has a human will which makes his virtue virtuous. You know, he chooses to align his will with the Father. It's not like I just, I am the you know, Father in a body. You know, I did the Father's will, but I have a body. So it emphasized that he truly, they were in perfect harmony, but it's an essential to be fully human, you have to have a will. Without a will, you're not really fully human. The seventh council, maybe, yeah. Yes, please. Yes. Does the Son, as a distinct person, have a separate will in the Father? Uh, no, no. It's uh, uh, no. That we. I'm going to be true. No, they, they, the Trinity has, you know, has but one will, etc. We're simply saying that Christ, the hypostatic union, He alone, you know, the, the uh, He alone. It's, it's human. He talks about my, you know, when He talks about from the Father, He's talking about His humanity. But no, God has one. God is one. Good, good question, yeah. Now, with here, the Seventh Council, we had iconoclasm, which was a great, uh, uh, it was affected by the Muslim invasions. Uh, we're having in the, uh, uh, we have uh, in the seventh uh, century, six, 622, uh, we have uh, the Hijra, the beginning of the Muslim calendar. And Muslims did not have religious images. 
And so they claimed they were idols and things, and there became a whole thing about religious images. Let me tell you a little bit about, um, uh, about the theology here. First of all, they claim that reversing images is idolatry. Okay? And they said, uh, in some ways, they talked about this. Well, people would say, well, you know, we're not, uh, it's not because, you know, Jesus, uh, we're honoring Jesus as the Son of God. It's saying, well, all we could see of Jesus was his humanity. You know, so they sort of used the Nestorian argument. We can only see his humanity. So if a picture of Jesus, you're not seeing his godness, you're just seeing his humanity. And so that's why it's still a false image of him. Okay. I should tell you something you might not know. In both Hebrew and, and Greek, there are two different words for image. And, uh, you know, we translate the same way often in the, in, in, the, in the Bible, but they're different words. For example, we talk about we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're talking uh, about the Greek word is icon, you know, image. But when we talk about making, uh, you know, an image of anything, you know, in the sky, etc., they talk about don't make an image of anything. The word is idolon, we get our word idol from. So when the fathers looked at this, they said, what's the difference? Because after all, uh, you know, why, why is uh, there's images and there are images? Is the difference is an icon is a true image, it's authentic. Whereas an idol is a false image. So the trouble with an, uh, with an idol, the, theoretically and theologically, was it told a lie about God. It's a lie about God. You know, God doesn't look anything like a calf or something. There's nothing about that that is not a true image of God. It's a false image. So they argued that the difference between icon and idol, idolon, you know, idol, an icon and an idol, is, is, was, is it a true image or not? And so their argument, uh, okay, so that's uh, critical. And in Hebrew, we have the same thing. There are two, there are two words, one for... Uh, you know, a false, you know, false image and one for the, the real thing. And also they argue that matter is evil, you know, real religion, you know, that kind of, it's sort of the Gnostic thing is, you know, that it's a pure religion not to have stuff. Okay. Now, here the decision justified the reverencing of images. Uh, first of all, one of the justifications was this. It goes back to the anti-Nestorianism. We actually saw Jesus. That's the thing. He's the visible God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the point is, if we say we can't separate the humanity of Jesus from his divinity, if Mary is truly the Theotokos, to see an image of Jesus is to see there's one Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a false image by definition, because we've seen Jesus. So that was the big theological argument that won the day, is that we, you know, we really have seen, this is John of D D Damascus, who came up on, you know, on, the, on the holy icons. Okay. As for reverencing images, he said, wait a second, no one's actually reverencing the image. We're, rever we're reverencing what the image stands for, you know, the, behind that, etc. Okay. And, um, okay, matter is not evil. Now, what's going to happen here, okay, but does, I'm going to say one more thing about this, is this was not, a, there's one more element that I should tell you about that separates us from the East. In the East, one of the things they came up with is their view was that the, the icons could have, you know, the church images could actually, in a way, be sacramental. They could be a vehicle of, of you know, the presence, you know, sort of vehicle of the presence. We in the West would not buy that. We had something called the Synod of Frankfurt after this, which, uh, you know, uh, where we said, no, we buy that, yes, you certainly can make paintings and things of Christ, They're, but that's all they are, is they're just pictures. They have no religious use as such. You know, there's, you can reference them because we got like we, we you know, salute the flag or something, but they're just pictures. We don't buy that there's some special way that you know the saint can be present or something, or God is present in these. And so that was a division that we have 
uh, over the Seventh General Council. So the West, we absolutely rejected the notion they're anything other than pictures. Uh, you know, they're uh, famous, they're books for the unlearned, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Let's do some uh, uh, questions here. How many Catholic creeds are there? Yes, sir. Please. Yeah. Like, um, what do the reformers have to say about that? Because um, I've heard mixed um, things, and a lot of my Presbyterian friends are like, you know, the reformers, you know, shouldn't. Well, that, uh, they were mixed on this because one of the things we have to remember when we actually look at the history of the Reformation and things, being proud children of the Reformation, is we can't separate um, what people are doing from the situation in which they find themselves. For example, we all have Christmas trees. And, you know, there was a time, the reason that the practice came from, it was a remnant of tree worship. I mean, people actually thought there were spirits in trees. And if we lived in a time, if we were among the, like Boniface, early missionaries to Northern Europe or something, we might have trouble with having Christmas trees. Because <laughs> we'd say, boy, given the fact a lot of people actually do worship trees here, this is probably going to be a problem. Whereas later now we'd say, that's not a problem for anybody is one thing we find in the late Middle Ages, we still see certain parts of Catholicism like this, I mean, uh, is this, is they actually do treat the images as somehow in some ways being more than just a picture. Like they have certain, this image in this particular place, our mother, our lady of this or something, this particular image. And that's the kind of thing the reformers really had no use for. They were worried that people were actually looking, this image has special powers, you know. You go to this special image of Mary, or it's not just something to remind you, like your mom, you know, you remind you of someone. This special, you know, this is, we utterly rejected this as superstition. You know, they're saying, oh, no, we haven't. That was, and that was a time when that was really common. You know, images, typically people had better images, you know. You went to certain places because this had, they had a really special holy image. And that's why, but the idea that we theoretically, like England, we continued, now the, the Puritans hated them, but we continued, uh, Queen Elizabeth had a crucifix in her, um, in her, personal, um, in her personal chapel. Uh, Martin Luther often had crucifixes, you know, in Lutheran churches and things. So I think that what we miss is that at the time of the Reformation, the problem was a superstition that looked upon these images as individually being somehow having power connected with them. That certain images, because of their history or story, are somehow special, and that's superstition. So I think that's the way we'd look at them. But the idea that, we, that there's something wrong per se, the proof that we don't feel that way is that um, I can assure you good Presbyterians have Bible, Bible storybooks that have pictures of Jesus in them. Yeah. Why? Well, you know, they might say, well, for you know, I, and I think playing honor to images might be something else too. Is saying, you know, but, but saying simply have the pictures to remind us, and you know, like uh, like having President President Washington on the back of a courthouse wall or something. We say it reminds us of, of our, our first president. Yes. Well, um, I can't think about an official 
Anglican, but we would certainly say is we can't divide the one Lord Jesus Christ who rules over heaven and earth. And that Jesus Christ is truly a man. Now, we, said our, our, you know, we say in Timothy that we have one mediator with the Father, the man, Jesus Christ. So we can't separate those. So in some sense, we could say it certainly is true that you know, we cannot separate. The hypostatic union is absolute. So there is a man who sits at the right hand, not just the, the Logos sits at the right hand of God. There's a human being. That's what we celebrate, at the, by the way, at the Ascension. We celebrate the fact that you know, a human being, you know, he's the, the, our forerunner, our archon. You know, he's, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's, right, he's the forerunner you know, with the Father. So I don't know if I could say more than, uh, you know, more than that. That's really the critical thing. We can't separate uh, you know, Jesus simply functions as one person, one Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is not a complicated question. I'll back on to the icon question. Sorry. Yeah. But um, I also have had like a lot of friends in Baptist circles cite like the second commandment and say like images of those things as violations. Does that go back to what you were talking yeah. about? Yeah. The word is a different word. They say idol. And first of all, they don't, mean, they don't mean images per se, because actually there are images all over the temple. There are not only the cherubim on top, but there are cherubim in the, on the, in the, on the uh, what do you call it, on the draperies, uh, etc. There are on the actual woodwork, etc. They have the, the oxen, they have the 12 oxen, etc. So they, certainly Jews were not, I, were not, like some Muslims don't make any image of anything alive. The Jews were never like it. Jews synagogues were filled with pictures of Bible stories, just no pictures of God. Okay, and that 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 uh, um, uh, kind of thing. So no, the trouble that became is that the church said, "Is what do we mean by that image?" You know, the word idolon, and they say what made it wrong was it was a false image. And so with Jesus, in Jesus, you know, that is not a false image of the, you know God. The calf was not an image of God at all. But Jesus just truly, you know, he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the, the argument we had in the church the, at the at second that we accepted was, yeah, that it's that truly, and that's why the Eastern Church uses the, uh, the, um, the image of the um, visitors in Mamre, the three angelic visitors. Because if you're familiar with the story, if you read the Hebrew text, it's amazing. Well, the English, it shows in the English translations, is one of the reasons they thought that had to be the Trinity is they really have a very, it's really amazing. It comes through, it says, he saw three men come. And then we say, Abraham says, my Lord, in the singular. And we keep going back before singular and plural with them, back and forth. So he's talking about, he says, he saw the angel of the Lord. He says, but, you know, he saw, he sees, you know, he sees the Lord. He says, you know, so we use singular and plural and say, we think this is clearly a manifestation of the Trinity. And so that's why they thought that would be a true image of the Trinity, because it's something we actually saw. You know, if it, we've actually seen it, then it's not a false image. You know, they actually saw the three angelic visitors, and this would be an authentic, you know, thing of saying that we saw, at least in that, uh, you know, that, that would be the theological argument why that is a valid image of the Trinity. Yes? In perfect harmony. I mean, it's a perfect harmony. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, you, know, you know, he's, um, uh, you know, it's a perfect, we'll, we'll, we'll still be us. 
I'll see with my own eyes on another, but our will will be, part of salvation, our will will be perfectly aligned with God's will, you know, in, in the, in, 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 when we're with God forever. It'll still be me. It won't be like I seem to have a will or something, and I'm just a body, you know. <laughs> it will still be me, but, you know, no longer sin is what's caused my will not to work, you know, to, uh, to not be aligned with God. Are you aware of one of the things that might really help this way is, um, since we have some time here, I'm glad we still have 50 minutes, is think of it this way. Uh, when we look at the word logos, if I mentioned this to you in Chachmah for, for wisdom in the Old Testament, is what they, what they uh, stand for is with the word logical comes from logos. So we just think of a word, but it's more than that. The Greeks looked at this as being logic comes from, words are how we actually put order in things, how we, how we interpret the world around us. So logos meant there was a natural order in the universe. The world, the world was not chaotic. So the logos represents the, 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 the order of the whole universe. You know, Christ has put a whole, is the creator of all things. He's put an order in the universe. Our basics of moral theology is we believe, unlike the world, that there actually is an order. There is an objective moral order. And it's imprinted on the world. The Hebrew idea that chachma is the word that we translate as wisdom is remember in chapter 8 of, of Proverbs, it talks about the whole world. It has its imprint. It's saying the world isn't chaotic. It's saying God from the very beginning has, you know, has imprinted his own image, this, this wisdom on everything. And so, um, I forgot who, so we're, and so if we were in perfect harmony with it, that's happiness, what happens is original sin has disordered our affections. So we're now basically a square peg in a round hole. You know, we're, we're um, you know, classic thing of disordered affections, if you, like I tell you, if you don't get hungry, you, die of, you could die of starvation. You know, hunger is a good thing, but disordered affections, now we don't know when to stop eating. You know, that kind of thing. Our sexuality, without that, we wouldn't have the, the bonding, family. It's meant to actually bring us, bring us together, create new life, but actually when it goes out of control, like a cancer is, is a growth that goes crazy, it's suddenly instead of bringing us together, it sets us apart. People start, you know, you know it brings us apart. It does all the op opposite things. So I think what we're looking at is that with the uh, elimination of sin, with our, you know, our sinful bodies and things, with, with the elimination of sin, we now can be completely aligned, you know, with God's will, that everything about us will be completely aligned. But yeah, it's still, you know, it's still us. We certainly have a will in, in that life or we wouldn't be us. That's part of being a human. <laughs> when they give the de council definitions, you know, with they talk about, you know, you have this, uh, you know, with a will and, you know, they, without that we wouldn't be me. Any other questions now before we go to our questions here? And then we are going to open again for questions. Um, okay, how many Catholic creeds are there? Three. What are they? Athanasian. Okay, and remember the Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed. That's why we always use it at baptisms. Always, and that's why the Apostles' Creed is the one that says, actually, it's original, you know, it says, I believe. You know, we normally put it even in the liturgy, say, I believe, because it's my personal declaration. Because remember, when we prepare for baptism, historically, what would happen is they used to have something called the, um, what, I'm trying what the term is, uh, I'm, I'm skipping the term now, but our, our faith was not, uh, disciplina arcani, that's it. It means the, uh, the, the discipline of secrecy. is the idea you don't throw throw this or twine. It's we, we did not share things to people who weren't initiated. 
And so when you first came to the Christian faith, what would happen was you, at Lent, is you, for the first time you would actually, we give you two things. We call it the traditio. Trado in Latin means to hand, hand over, like a, re, like a baton relay. And you would be handed over once you're enrolled with the catechumens. You would be given, for the first time, you would actually hear the Our Father. The very first, it was never said publicly. And the other thing, you'd be handed over with the Creed, the Apostles' Creed. And then you would spend Lent mastering these and understanding, etc., what they meant, etc. And then what would happen at your baptism is called the Raditio, meaning giving back. Traditio is we hand it over to you. You say, yeah, you gave this to what the church believes. Now this is what I believe too. That's what happened to your baptism. This is what I, it's not just what you believe. This is what I believe. I believe. Do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, etc. So that's what the Apostles' Creed was really important. That is the... Uh, that is what we need to, and that's normally in Anglicans is the thing that's required to be baptized in our church, is you can have other disagreements with us, you know, as far as, you know, just to be, a, to be an Anglican, if you can say the creed without crossing your fingers. You know, uh, other things we, you could disagree with, but you could still be a member of the church. I mean, that's the, the okay. The Nicene Creed basically ex goes, you know, we say basically expands that because of misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit and about who Christ is, you know, in the Trinity. Okay, that's basically how it's expanded. And the Athanasian Creed just clarifies that. Um, but the two key ones for us now, in practical terms, are we say in our, in our statements of faith and things that the Apostles and Nicene Creeds are definitive. That is to say, everything necessary for salvation is in those creeds, yes. Yes. To be a part of your community. And, but it feels like 39 articles don't function. Not at all. First of all, they're not, that's an excellent point. They're not a statement of faith. They have never, a statement of faith is meant to be comprehensive, like the Augsburg Confession and things, and you know, the Westminster. These are meant to be comprehensive. They're not. They were specifically positions the church took on, on topics at that time. We even described them that way. At, at topics that had arisen, here's the church's official position that's teaching on these. But dogmatically, we make a difference between what's essential to faith. Now, that's not, I hate when sometimes people describe that as adiaphora. That's not what adiaphora means. Adiaphora means things don't make any difference. Who cares? Like, liturgical colors is just, a, is just a custom. It has no... Theological positions are very important, even if they're not essential. So it's wrong to ever use the word adiaphora, meaning just because we can have disagreements. Theological opinions can have real, real value to them, but they're not, you know, but, but we just, there's some things that stop you from being a Christian. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, you can't be a Christian. You know, you can admire him and say a great deal, but that's part of it. So we're simply saying dogmatically. And as a Catholic church, we make a, make a big deal about we are a creedal church rather than confessional church. You know, anyone, the essential part of the faith is, is in the creeds. Anyone who can adhere to the creeds has everything they need to be a full member of the church. Now, as clergy, we are required, you know, our church has taken, you know, we have teachings, theological positions we, uh, we hold to, but those are not something that would disqualify someone from being in the church, but, but here's the church's position versus, you know, but the, to be, uh, we're just simply part of a bigger Catholic church, and all you need to be part of the bigger Catholic church is, do you believe the creeds? And if you do, we can't say no. Anyone who believes the creeds as Anglicans uh, can be a member of the church. But to actually teach in the church, you have to take an oath every year uh, that you, of your belief and that you will teach in accordance with the 39 Articles of Religion. But we explain those as not a comprehensive statement of faith. It's simply our statement on certain issues that were in, uh, in conflict. 
then we took a position on what we think the scriptures teach. So, for example, we believe in the, uh, that, uh, that we truly participate using the very words of Paul in the Christ's body and blood in Holy Eucharist. However, if somebody didn't believe that, if they came from a Baptist tradition, they could still be a member of our church and take communion. As we don't have the power to do differently, because if you believe the creed, you're a Catholic Christian. We can't deny, as a we look, we can't deny communion to a Catholic Christian. <laughs> so we can't. We say, we're, you're wrong on this. Something I should tell you also about with images, to understand something about the, that's going to be important to help understand. I deeply respect the Anabaptists of the Reformation. Uh, you know, in the, in the Baptist tradition. But let me explain, every tradition has its, knowing its history can tell us what some of the, the, the foibles we'll have, okay? And one of the problems with the Baptist tradition is the Anabaptist tradition goes to the, right to the people Jesus loved most. It goes right down to the simplest people, you know, the one you call those. He, these were the people who were most victims of superstition in the Middle Ages. They hardly ever got serious teaching and things. They believed all the silly stuff, you know, about, you know, all the stuff they really... They really weren't into that. That's normally what happens at the bottom of the ladder with people out of educations and things. You know, they were in the bottom. So they reacted strongly to, uh, to superstition. But sometimes it's like a woman who's been raped. This is a fact of counseling that you learn. <laughs> is often finds it very hard to be sexually intimate with her own husband. It's so traumatic. Even though there's no connection between making love with someone who loves you and having a total stranger violate you have nothing in common. But understandably, people who have been violated often find it very, very hard. The reaction is just, don't touch me, is often something people have to work out of. It's a very, not an easy thing. And so what happens here is these people were so burned by superstition that they actually sort of got rid of the supernatural in most cases. They tried to get rid of everything that was not perfectly explicable in purely human terms. They really went the opposite way. So ironically, you know, a lot of Baptist practice became how secular can we be? How little, you know, anything that, that seems to have anything connected with the supernatural, you know, was to be uh, uh, avoided. And that's really an overreaction, I think. It's an understandable overreaction. That's why they're, they have such non-existent sacramental theology. They don't know what to do with sacraments because anything that's physical has got to be wrong. It's not spiritual. So even though Jesus says, you'll make disciples, you know, Pac says he who believes and is baptized. Baptists just don't think baptism has any importance. Simply, it's an obedience issue. It has no meaning other than, well, it's a sweet thing to do, but, you know, you've been saved. Jesus said, you know, Mark says, you know, he who's believed and is baptized will be saved. Jesus said, baptize them. But, you know, they don't want it. It's physical. We can't do anything like that. It'd be superstitious. You know, Lord's Supper. Well, he said we have to do it, but we don't like it. So throw it in the back of the church and someone wants to grab some on the way out. That's okay. Uh, but this is the natural reaction of, you know, um, you know to, to this kind of thing. So I think we have to understand there is I understand where it's coming from, but it's, I don't think it's something. I think a woman in that position would say, how can we restore things right with you? is the answer instead of saying, well, I guess you'll just never be intimate again, I think would be a tragedy. <laughs> and also we have the commandment of Jesus. I mean, his spirit works in the sacraments. So we're actually limiting something he set up. That's a problem. I always said to my, my Baptist friends, I said, it's sort of odd. For you, your theology seems to be the four spiritual laws, and those are sweet. But I've got to tell you, where are they in the Bible? They're nowhere in the Bible. The baptism is all over the place. Everybody who comes to Jesus is baptized, you know, in the, in the New Testament. So you've thrown out what Jesus actually says you do when people come to Jesus, <laughs> and you've replaced it with something that's nowhere in the Bible. 
That doesn't sound biblical to me. Where did I miss something? Show me your four spiritual laws. If these are the center of your whole faith, this is the gospel. Where are they anywhere in the New Testament? Not anywhere. You sort of put this together. It's sweet and it's good, but you're saying this is the heart of the Christian faith, which is nowhere in the New Testament. And then the, what, everywhere you're saying, here's what you need to do. You need to be baptized, etc. That is of no importance to you. That, well, if you have time, if you feel in the mood, that's great. So I think that's a problem when we, when we start to react. And now with, you say, but I think it's everybody has these problems in their traditions. Like in a Catholic background, what can happen is we can say this creation can either point us towards God. We say that, you know, matter matters. Or it can take us away. Often the Presbyterians have that sort of reaction is stuff is going to distract us. We'll get distracted. And the Catholic tradition, there's a reason to believe that. Some people really got distracted by the stuff. It all, you know, the, the, instead of being a path to God, it became sort of that's... <coughs> But the reaction to, to abuse, it strikes me, is do the right thing. Calvin in the Institutes wonderfully says, when he talks about abuse, he says, that's like someone saying we shouldn't drink wine because some people get drunk. He says it being a, a crazy talk. He is French. Uh, you do understand he's from France. Uh, Noyon. He's, a, he's an attorney. Uh, but you know, that kind of thing. So I would just think in all of our traditions, one of the things I love as Anglicans is we say we, we naturally keep everything in balance. We we're truly Catholic and truly Reformed. So I think the important thing is realize how every one of these good things can go, can go, can go wrong. And we just want to make sure we keep things in balance. Ready for another question? So we have the three creeds. The Athanasian Creed, by the way, I think in some ways to call it a Catholic creed is a little much, personally. I mean, I agree with what's in it, but it was never actually accepted uh, in the East. You know, but not really, because there's some of the formulation is very much um, uh, a filioque stuff. Okay. Question two, what is the authority of general counsel, counsels ultimately based on? Ultimately, why do I believe something that the general counsel tells me? Because of Scripture. Yeah, that's why I believe it. All the counsel is telling me is how we read the Scripture. But it's not a sub. We don't just get together and decide what, 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 what God says. That does have no power. But we can read the Bible together, come together, pray about it, and read the Bible and say, what does this mean? That's different. But it's no substitute. Tradition itself means nothing. It's, uh, you know, just because things are old, a lot of dumb old stuff. You know? I mean, what makes tradition is holy tradition. Like Paul says, I'm handing on to you what I receive from the Lord. I hand on to you. That handing on of the deposit of faith is very, that's holy tradition, handing on the deposit of faith. There's nothing sacred about something just being around for a long time. I like to say with heresies are proof that no bad idea ever goes away. <laughs> Question three, which heresy treated the two natures of Christ as though they were two separate persons? Almost. I mean, it's a little overstatement. Basically. It's the reason we have the Council of, um, of Ephesus. Nestorius, right. Uh, yeah, so it's none of the above. Because remember, Pelagianism, uh, which is actually dealt with at, the, um, at, at Ephesus as well, we talked about, although it was never an issue in the East. Uh, it was a very Western thing. Uh, but uh, was the belief that uh, man had, that man's unassisted will, you know, could, uh, could do good. That we, by simply, if we tried hard enough, we could do that. Arianism, we know, is a, is a belief that Christ is, is a sec, at best a second-tier God. You know, he's not, he's, he's not, or, you know, or not God, just divine. Gnosticism is a whole family of heresies that tend to believe that there's something wrong with, with the nature and things, and we're, 
going down the physical. So it's actually uh, Nestorianism. Okay. Question four. Christ has both a divine will and a human will. True, and fa- true or false? You have a 50% chance of victory. True. And which of the general councils created or amended a creed? Did Nicaea create or amend a creed? The Nicene Creed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amended. The next one, Constantinople I, is the one that amended the Nicene Creed to add the words about the Holy Spirit. So that's where we have uh, uh, the Ni- Niceo Constantinopolitan Creed. Niceo Constantinopolitan Creed. Okay. And there we go. We uh, still have two fun filled minutes. Uh, is there any other questions you have? These are great. Uh, any question, but we covered a lot of material here on the Trinity, on the councils and things. But I hope the key things, the Trinity is important. It's not that hard when you go, we did the false analogies and things, but it really is important. It's how God works with us and how, and also the idea of how we enter into the life of God, the work of the Spirit. Okay, and when we talk about the creeds and the councils, again, is how we read scripture together. The creeds only have their value, especially the Nicene, because it's the council, we all got together and said, how do we summarize what's really essential about our faith? What's the, what does it really, what's the essential kernel, the core of the Christian, the kerygma of the Christian faith? Yeah. Um, I noticed that in our prayer book, sometimes the prayers will begin with uh, addressing the Father. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they begin by addressing the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, that's the that's the normative. We have, we kind of have valid exceptions from that. But we don't pray to the Spirit. No, well, well, we do have like a, there's a "Come Holy Spirit." We have as a hymn, uh, "Come Holy Spirit, wait, wait, uh, Creator Spiritus." But no, I mean the, the tradition of the church. People have uh, talked, you know, has we pray to Christ and we pray to the Father. But the normal in liturgy, the the norm from which we have exceptions is the norm is to speak to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we always have a doxology that mentions all three members, so they all are mentioned. But we can talk to the Son. This is interesting. Uh, we have something called Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, which is the notion that how we pray actually is a witness to what the churches believe. So the question did come up, can we pray to the Son? Because there are no actual instances of prayer to the Son in, 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 in the Scripture. The closest you can get is Stephen, but he was actually looking at Jesus, who was right there. So that's hardly a prayer in the sense of you know, abstractly praying. And what really won the day was the saying, well, the church has always done it. You know, it's universally. People have always prayed to Jesus, you know, and mentioned him as well. So, you know, and certainly he is God, so he's, you know, we could pray to him. But the, the normal, the best way to pray is, you know, we, Jesus wants us to focus, is to focus on the economy, you know, is to focus on to the Father, through the Son. But certainly somebody can say, Lord Jesus, you know, emphasizing his humanity and things. But when we do that in the church, you'll always find, you know, through who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit live and reign now and forever. Something at the end ties it together that mentions the other members of the Trinity. So reminding us whenever we talk to one, we're talking to all three. So we always do something at the end in the West that always mentions the other two. So we say, dear Father, we ask you this. We ask this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. That's why we always tie it. And when you speak to one, you speak to all. You don't say, Jesus, when you see the Father, make sure to tell him. You don't know him. 
No. Anything else? Good guys. Wow, you have um, good guys keeping keeping attention all this while. Amazing. <laughs>